Hello there. Welcome into another edition of the Intersection Podcast with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. First, it's Nancy Piercy, who examines how, with respect to gender and other issues, people have turned away from science, biology, in order to be led by feelings. Meanwhile, the Christian worldview is reinforced by science. Then you'll be hearing from Allie Worthington of Propel Women, who encourages women to face their fears by relying on God in faith. Then some words about accepting God's forgiveness and granting grace and forgiveness to others from Christian counselor Nan Brownsell. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from Peter Sprigg of the Family Research Council. In a recent conversation with me, he offered some insight into two different issues. One, the attempt by some to reclassify gender reassignment surgery as medically necessary. And two, the potential reconfirmation of a commissioner at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission who desires to redefine a term in civil rights law that is understood to mean gender to mean gender identity. Also, there's a new survey that was just conducted by the Barna Group examining the attitudes and trends of Generation Z. That's today's children and teenagers. The study was commissioned by Impact 360 Institute. Jonathan Morrow of that organization talks about some of the findings, including the faith or lack of it possessed by those in that age group. Finally, from First Liberty Institute, comments from Stephanie Taub who discusses a new division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which is intended to protect conscience and religious freedom. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Nancy Piercy is a professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. She also serves as editor-at-large of the Piercy Report and a fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. In a recent discussion, she shared material relative to her book, Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. She examines a trend to reject biology and essentially to reject one's physical makeup in favor of feelings and emotion. From that conversation, this is Nancy Piercy. Well, every day in the media, we are being barraged by these moral issues, by things like abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, the hookup culture, and, and many more. So in Love Thy Body, what I do is I go beyond the politically correct talking points. I go beyond just social commentary, and I expose the secular ethic that underlies all of these. And I show that the secular ethic rests on a low view of the human person. And this gives us a new way to approach these issues instead of just saying, uh, you know, many times we try to, memorize a different argument for each different issue. Well, it turns out there's a common underlying secular worldview that underlies all of them, and that gives us a much easier way to approach them. We can show that all of them rest on a low view of the body that denigrates human rights and, and um, destroys the, the basis for human dignity. Well, and what a great point when we talk about some of these things that you mentioned, whether it be the topic of abortion or homosexuality, transgender, uh, other areas that we find are in the headlines and are great concern to Christians these days. You talk about them obviously being of a common worldview. Now, as believers in Christ, we recognize that they all are opposed to the biblical or the Christian worldview 
perspective. And you also, as you point out, and I wanted you to elaborate just a bit, they, they come together as a, as you call it, a pervasive hostility toward the body and biology. So explain that and drill down just a bit on that, because I think that's fascinating. Right. Well, it's easiest to see in abortion, because of abortion, if you... Uh, if you read what the professional bioethicists are saying these days, they will all acknowledge that scientifically speaking, life begins at conception, that the fetus is human from fertilization, scientifically, biologically. But they will then say, nonetheless, we can kill, we can kill it for any reason or no reason because it's not yet a person. And by personhood, they mean something like some level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. And so what are they really saying? They're saying being biologically a, per- a human does not matter. Being biologically human no longer is a basis for human rights. Instead, you need to earn the right to personhood by, have, by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning, neocortical functioning, and so on. So look, notice how this is a very... It denigrates the concept of being biologically human. It says being biologically, genetically human has no value, no moral significance, and does not warrant legal protection. So in a sense, it is a secular view now that's saying we don't care about biology. Biology has no meaning or no purpose and and has no, no value. And it's Christians who are saying, wait a minute, scientifically the fetus is human, and it should be valued from the moment of conception. So it is Christians now who are arguing for the scientific view of human life, while it is secular people who are saying, we don't care about biology anymore. We are, go- we are going to define human life by some arbitrary philosophical notion of personhood, which, by the way, none of them agree on. They all draw the line at a different place. Which functions do you have to have in order to be a person? And, and how d- developed do they have to be? Every bioethicist has a different definition. So it's become a completely relativistic, postmodern concept, whereas it's the Christians who are arguing that science matters, biology matters. And that's a, it's a, contrary to the normal stereotypes, mm-hmm. and we need yeah. to really press this. Nancy Piercy here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website, nancypiercy.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Allie Worthington, Executive Director of Propel Women. In our recent conversation, she discussed material relative to her book, Fierce Faith, A Woman's Guide to Fighting Fear, Wrestling Worry, and Overcoming Anxiety. From that conversation, this is Allie Worthington. Research showed there's five main ways that we all try to manage our fear. We kind of try to numb the uncomfortable feelings. There's busy, there's blame, there's binge. And binging just means doing anything to excess. It can be something that's inherently good, like exercising. It can be um, shopping or TV watching or any other number of activities. But if it's, a stre- if it's caused by a stressful situation and we're doing it to avoid feeling our feelings, that's when it's unhealthy. So there's busy, blame, binge. The next one is bury. And we bury by just denying that we have fear. That's what I was doing. I was completely unaware that Fear was stealing my joy and stealing my happiness. Like, I just thought this is what life had to be like, so I was denying it to myself. And then the final one 
is the most fascinating and the most important for us to understand. It's called brood. And brood is another word for rumination. And it comes from, it's so gross, it comes from the way a cow eats. It ruminates on its food. A cow will Hmm. um, chew the grass, swallow it, and throw it up, chew it again, swallow it, throw it up over and over again. And this is exactly what we do with our thoughts. We will throw up a bad situation that's happened before in our minds or um, a fear that we have about something in the future. And it plays on replay. It's like watching a bad movie on repeat. But it's so important for us to be aware of it because this one behavior, brooding, is directly related to depression. So when people Mm. are depressed, their thoughts are normally um, surrounded by brooding. And if you aren't depressed yet, but you get in a habit of brooding, it's directly related to causing depression in your life. So it's really important to be aware of it so we can overcome it and not get trapped in that in that thought process. You talk about the battle against fear in the spiritual and the physical sense. As we close, elaborate on that if you would. Absolutely. I we know that we fight fear and we fight from a spiritual perspective using weapons of worship and prayer. But then just because just like we live on two different levels, the physical and the spiritual, we need to fight on two levels. So not only do we fight from the spiritual perspective through through prayer and worship, we also have to fight just with practical tools. Because we wake up in the morning and we have a knot of anxiety in our stomach about how we're going to get through the day or a situation going on, we just need to know what to do. So I wrote Fierce Faith, um, chapter by chapter, fear by fear, to give women and men really practical tools to know exactly what they're supposed to do when these feelings, these fears pop up, because I want us to be well-armed. Fear isn't something that has to get the best of us. Fear and anxiety don't have to create depression in our lives. We, we can be armed with, with spiritual strength. We can be armed with practical tools to be able to overcome. Hmm. What would you say would be maybe one of the key tools or strategies to overcoming fear and anxiety? Well, number one, being aware. Once we are aware that we have an issue with something, it loses, it loses its scariness, so to speak. So when I know, for instance, that I am worried about a certain situation that will happen, um, I, what will happen to me is I'll start going into that anxiety spiral where you have one thought and then you have another thought and then all of a sudden everything seems terrible. Have you ever been there? Yeah. So what I will do when I'm kind of in that anxiety spiral is I'll say, okay, this thought that I'm having, um, I need to question it. This, I need to hijack the spiral. And what I'll do is this bad situation that I'm so worried about, is it realistic? And very often my fear of something that's going to happen, it isn't realistic. It's something that I'm just imagining. But sometimes it is realistic. And if it is, I'll ask myself, do I have any level of control over this situation? For instance, if I'm afraid Nashville is going to get swallowed up in a hole tomorrow, I can't do anything about it. But if I'm afraid that, you know, we're, we're having a financial situation because there's a bill, can I do something about it? Well, yes, I can. So once we identify what fear we're afraid of, and then once I identify that it is something that's, that's rational to be afraid of and that I can do something about it, the next step is just to make a plan, to go, what, what are the one, two, or three things that I can do in this situation 
to make this better or to stop it altogether. Allie Worthington here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website Allie, A-L-L-I, Worthington.com. Next, it's Nan Brown Self. She is a retired licensed professional counselor and registered play therapist, as well as a former member of the American Association of Christian Counselors. She is the author of the book, Forgiveness, Making Space for Grace. She highlighted issues relative to forgiveness, unforgiveness, and bitter root judgment when she spoke with me. Here now is Nan Brown Self. Elaborate with respect to that that captivity that people live in simply because they don't forgive. Exactly. Um, well, just backing up just a little bit, if someone offends you through unkind words, criticism, judgment, or anything like that, and you choose to release that offense back to God, there's no forgiveness there. But if for some reason you make a decision to bring that offense into your heart and you hold the offender accountable through your own sin of unforgiveness, then you have put yourself in the prison of unforgiveness. And you get into the prison quickly when you won't forgive, but you get out of the prison as you process through steps of forgiveness and you release the offender you release the offense to God. You were talking about not only forgiveness, but also the prison of unforgiveness. So let's talk about the release from that prison, from that captivity. What would you say would be the first step to really us or our making space for grace as it relates to other people? I think the first step would be to um, go before the Lord and ask Him to show you areas where you have unforgiveness. Because many times we are not aware of these things. But God is so gracious to show us what we need to forgive. So God will show you what you need to forgive, and then you confess your sin of unforgiveness. And there may be many other sins associated with that, but right now we're talking about the sin of unforgiveness. Then you pray for forgiveness and you repent of your sins. Now, there's another word that's very similar to the word repent that I really like, and that is to um, renounce your sin. And to renounce your sin means you fall out of agreement with it. And that's what we do when we Hmm. repent. We are falling out of agreement with our sin. Then we take that sin that God has shown us, and we have we are repenting, and we ask him to nail it to death on the cross and put it to death. And that's from Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Then you allow yourself to grieve over any feelings of pain or loss. Often when we have offense toward us, We do have feelings of pain and loss, and we can release those feelings to God, and we can ask him to remove any unforgiveness or other sins from our heart and replace the hardness in our heart with the opposite of of that sin. And that is from Ezekiel 36.26. You ask God to give you a new heart after he takes out the heart of stone. And then, because God is the most amazing meter 
of our needs, then you can ask to meet the needs that were not met you as a child, such as unconditional love, acceptance, and value, security, recognition, nurture and emotional nourishment, and comfort. Now, those are basic needs of adults, but they are also basic needs of children. And many of us did not have these needs met as children. So we can go straight to God and ask him to meet those needs for us. Then you ask him how to show you how your unforgiveness and other sins have hurt your relationships with others. And you pray and ask him to heal those relationships with faith then you thank him for answering your prayers. So this is the progression of coming from unforgiveness into forgiveness, and the prison door of unforgiveness opens. Nan Brown Self here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website forgivenessbygrace.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. When you go to The Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests here on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through the website, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Also, through faithradio.org, you can learn more about the Faith Radio app. You can access The Intersection podcast through the app. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Peter Sprigg is Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at the Family Research Council. He spoke with me recently about two relevant issues. One is the attempt to define gender reassignment surgery as medically necessary by the Department of Health and Human Services. Also, a potential reappointment of a commissioner to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that presents some concern. Here now from that conversation is Peter Sprigg. Gender reassignment surgery is the is the surgery that some uh, transgender people have uh, to try to alter their bodies to make uh, their bodies look more like the that of the opposite biological sex, which is the sex that they identify with psychologically. And this type of surgery is very expensive. So a lot of transgender people who would like to have the surgery um, can't because of the cost. Therefore. What they would like to have is uh, some sort of mandate that would require insurance companies and the government, if the government happens to be your insurance company through things like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, to, uh, to actually pay for this surgery. In order to achieve that, uh, they have to have it declared to be medically necessary. And so there's been a big push in recent years to uh, assert uh, or claim that this surgery is medically necessary. But I discovered that um, there were a, a couple of decisions came came out of um, the Department of Health and Human Services 
under the Obama administration, in the later years of the Obama administration on this issue, and the most recent one in 2016 actually called into serious doubt um, whether there is sufficient scientific evidence to, to demonstrate that gender reassignment surgery can be medically necessary. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, is a sort of a quasi-independent body that is charged with um, enforcing the nation's uh, employment discrimination laws. Even with that mandate upon him to appoint a Democrat to this seat, that it is unwise to reappoint Kai Feldblum because she is uniquely extreme in some of her views. Now, when she was first appointed to this position, as you said, Family Research Council and a lot of other groups raised concerns about her appointment because of the very open hostility that she had expressed to religious liberty, uh, and specifically for the religious liberty of Christians who may oppose some aspects of the LGBT agenda. Um, uh, Ms. Feldblum is an open lesbian activist and was previously a law professor at Georgetown University Law School. And um, in fact, she was the uh, she's considered one of the principal authors of the original ENDA, the um, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would add sexual orientation and gender identity to our nation's civil rights laws. That bill has never passed, but um, she has pushed for that. But um, she has said quite explicitly that when she, that she believes when there is a clash between religious liberty and sexual liberty, she thinks sexual liberty should win pretty much all the time. <laughs> and we think that's a very radical position, given that religious liberty is a fundamental right expressed in the First Amendment to the Constitution, and sexual liberty is found nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, so the, our initial concerns with her were about that. Um, she, uh, she was appointed by President Obama. She was reappointed in 2013 to a second term, but um, was only narrowly confirmed, uh, only got 54 votes in favor of her confirmation in the Senate. So there was significant opposition to her then. But we feel it's unwise for President uh, uh, Trump to be appointing her again now, even if it, as has been speculated, is part of a deal to get a couple of his Republican appointees through. Um, and during her time, I, you know, I had, I had written about it when she was first appointed, and I went back and reviewed some of the work she's done since she's been on the EEOC. Um, and the thing that we feel is so radical about uh, that she has been pushing on the EEOC is she wants to redefine part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that I mentioned. That bans discrimination based on uh, race, but it also bans discrimination based on sex. She is pushing an interpretation of discrimination on the basis of sex to include or incorporate within it sexual orientation and gender identity. Peter Sprigg here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Next up, it's Jonathan Morrow, Director of Cultural Engagement for Impact 360 Institute. He discussed with me a new study commissioned by that organization and conducted by the Barna Group called Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivation shaping the next generation. Observing the beliefs of that demographic group, this particular study focused in on teens between the ages of 13 and 18. From that recent conversation, this is Jonathan Morrow. Gen Z is the truly 
you know, true digital natives in that sense because they've never known anything different. And so that's a fast-shaping uh, factor in their worldview. So I think that's been an accelerant um, because not because information – this is a really important distinction. It's not as though the Internet and information and, and social media is reducing faith per se. It's that these students haven't been equipped to think through contrary opinions and different points of view well and really know why they believe what they believe. So the, the massive undercurrent – of all the different ideas and images and agendas out there, I think are really eroding um, the Christian faith among this generation because they're just simply not being equipped. What are some of the the most eye-opening findings with respect to the personal faith of these teenagers? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we found was the continuing trend of, of, of atheism and agnosticism. So 34% um, had a religious affiliation as an either an atheist, agnostic, or none in Gen Z, which is pretty significant. We also found that teens 13 to 18 years old are twice as likely as adults to say they're an atheist, about 13% as opposed to 6%. And so we're seeing the increase of kind of this, we don't have the social pressure anymore for people to go, hey, you know what, I guess I should say I'm a Christian. We're in a post-Christian context now. Many in Gen Z are a blank slate, spiritually speaking, you know, where many millennials were like, they had, they were disillusioned with the church, or they had met a Christian, had a hypocritical, um, like a hypocritical experience or something like that, whereas Gen Z is like, I don't even know really kind of what you're talking about, never been to church, I don't, you know, so they've, they're kind of more of a blank slate, but we also see another trend of moral and spiritual relativism continuing to increase, you know, with about 24% of Gen Z saying that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society, and about 58% agree with the statement that many religions can lead to eternal life. There is no one true religion. So one of the things that we're seeing is that their moral and spiritual confusion is just really increased. That's one of the things I really noticed when we did these uh, focus groups with the Barna Group, with both Christians and non-Christian teenagers, is we just kept hearing this, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure. I mean, these were Christians and non-Christians, and so they just were confused about how to answer these things, and it just it, that was I think that's a big marker of this generation is just kind of the moral and spiritual confusion there. How can this data be used by parents as well as those in the church, maybe youth ministers, those that work and minister to youth? I really am a fan of Gen Z. I think they're smart, they're creative, they're fun, they're innovative. They're just not prepared. You know, mm. you know when I think about this, one of the questions that I think about is, are they prepared to follow Jesus in a post-everything world? And I don't think they are. You know, as Christian leaders and pastors and educators and parents, we want what's best for them. We want what's best for our kids. We want them to grow up and follow Jesus for a lifetime, but unfortunately, they're just not ready. And there's several reasons for that. I think we've bubble-wrapped our kids. I think we've created too safe of an environment in many ways, so they haven't developed kind of resilience and any grit and some of those kind of things, especially when it comes to their faith. We've kind of pretended that you know, if we just keep them out of all these bad ideas, they won't ever encounter anyone who challenges their faith. And the reality is, pluralism is everywhere. They're going to encounter these issues. And I also think that we've kind of continued to raise our game in this generation of kind of this Disney World-like experiences and entertainment for this generation. And entertainment doesn't lead to maturity. And so I think we need more training and less bubble wrap and, and more equipping in that less entertainment idea. And so this study helps show, you know what, they're morally and spiritually confused. Well, let's learn to talk about truth. Over half um, say that factual evidence matters to them, right? So let's talk about 
why we believe what we believe. Why are there good reasons to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and he rose from the dead, and that God exists, and that you can trust the Bible? Those are things that I continue to see students resonating with here at Impact 360 and when we teach them. And so we got to do something about screens and helping them have healthy um, postures and attitudes towards that because it's basically an addictive technology. Um, and so we've got to learn to kind of find those pressure points that long for real relationships but they're just kind of isolated and alone. They're anxious and they're depressed. Um, they're, they're the most medicated generation um, to date, and a lot of that has to do with that anxiety and depression. So those are things that we're just going to need to move into with compassion and awareness and maybe rethink the way we do youth ministry and different things because we're not preparing them for the world of 20 years ago, and I think sometimes we, we kind of do that. We need to prepare them for a post-Christian context where they're going to be challenged and it's going to be uncomfortable to be a Christian. That tyranny of tolerance is going to creep in, and we need to make sure they're ready for it. Jonathan Morrow here on The Intersection. The Impact 360 website is impact360.org. The Barna Group site is barna.com. Well, finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Council for First Liberty Institute, Stephanie Taub, providing information and comments about a new division of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services intended to protect conscience rights, including religious liberties, for those who work in health care professions. Here now is Stephanie Taub. We're a nationwide law firm that protects religious liberty for all Americans, and we applaud HHS for creating its new division on conscience and religious freedom. We think this is a really encouraging sign. So why this is important, doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals must be free to practice medicine in accordance with their own ethical beliefs. Without conscience protections and protections like this division, doctors and nurses could be forced to perform procedures that they believe are unethical. So what we have here is we have this division and a proposed rule that goes along with it that are designed to enact or to actually give teeth to 25 federal statutes that are already on the books that protect people from being discriminated against because they have objections to some procedures, like uh, performing abortions or sterilizations. And I know something that you and uh, Mr. Butterfield point out in this, this memo, this article that you put together, there was, for instance, the, the whole issue. In fact, this is something that was discussed here on this program last week, the, the furtherance of this transgender agenda with respect to gender reassignment surgery. Now the Department of Health and Human Services has actually stood against that, but you guys actually noticed that there was a trend toward advocacy for that type of surgery. Well, there, there could be doctors, Christian doctors or healthcare employees, healthcare professionals that would not want to be involved in this sort of procedure. And they certainly, you know, this is just one example where people would actually need protection. In our article, we cover about, uh, we cover conscience rights and we show that in the healthcare realm, especially, it is very common for states and federal governments and the federal government to protect our rights of conscience. So we go through and we catalog about 160 different conscience protections across the states. Um, so basically in, in areas like abortion and contraception and things like that, these are like controversial areas. And we think it's important for doctors and nurses to be able to follow their own ethical beliefs, to be able to follow their own religious beliefs and not be forced to, to, forced to violate them or risk losing their job for, for standing up for what they believe in. 
Well, you mentioned some general areas with respect to, for instance, abortion or the contraception. I know that has been a a huge area. And even going back to the enactment of the so-called Affordable Care Act, where you had this mandate that was issued by that department, that same department, the Department of Health and Human Services, that would not, you know, it would basically mandate that that employers provide free contraception or drugs that could cause abortion in their health care plans. And they're especially for nonprofit organizations. I know First Liberty has been involved in in trying to provide the defense for nonprofit organizations. Insight for Living Ministries, for instance, is one of those ministries with which people are familiar with, several ministries of the Christian Missionary Alliance. So First Liberty has been right there on the front lines in trying to provide protections from these organizations having to to do things at the direction of the government that from a conscience perspective that they would would not feel comfortable in doing and this you know with respect to this contraceptive mandate it has really raised a lot of concerns uh, for religious and nonprofit organizations as well as businesses that wish to operate according to christian principles such as we saw in the hobby lobby case comment on that if you would that's right. So First Liberty has been out there trying to de- defending these um, these ministries like Insight for Living Ministry a- against the contraceptive mandate. So it is. So not only was HHS not actively enforcing or protecting, um, it, it wasn't a priority for them not protecting conscience rights. But but now we see, or we actually saw in the last administration, them going after or um, going after ministries like. Um, Little Sisters of the Poor and Insight for Living Ministries uh, to try to um, get them to be complicit in providing con- in providing contraceptions, including abortifacients that they disagree or that they disagreed with that they couldn't didn't feel like they can provide or facilitate in good conscience. And so now this is why this is such an encouraging change that they are actually going to enforce laws that have been around for decades. Some of them have been around for decades. And um, and actually realize that religious rights are civil rights, and this is this mm. is, so. This is so encouraging. Stephanie Taub here on the intersection. The First Liberty website is first. Spell it out. Liberty dot org. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. Also through the homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access The Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more through faithradio.org. There are two blogs accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page and you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.